Welcome to Passionately His, a ministry of Dr. Jeff Loach and St. Paul's Church in Nobleton, Ontario, Canada. Coming up, we'll hear a message from God's Word. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast and check us out on YouTube at the link in the description where you'll find past services and messages that will inform your mind and form your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's this week's message. I've always been a fan of idioms. You know, literary or oral conglomerations of words that in their collective meaning have almost nothing to do uh, with their individual meaning. Uh, For instance, we might say, it's raining cats and dogs. We understand, particularly if English is our first language, we understand what that means. But we also know that if we go and look out the window, we're not going to see felines and canines falling out of the sky right? Some years ago, the Canadian wordsmith Bill Castleman published three volumes of Canadian sayings, which I was prohibited from reading in bed because of the disturbance I was causing from gales of laughter. These were volumes of idioms used by Canadians, some intriguing, some hilarious, and some downright unsuitable for use in the pulpit, if you know what I mean. I reread these books from time to time, both for the laughs and for the reminders of just how many varieties of Canadian cultures there are and an appreciation for how words can impact our lives. An example from Castleman's first volume is this. There was a hill to climb, and he didn't have the right boots. This was one translated from Swedish and apparently heard in Saskatchewan. Now, When Marv Lindgren sees this later, he may be able to tell me uh, whether he heard that growing up in Saskatchewan. But it has nothing to do with climbing hills and not really much to do with boots. There are not many hills in Saskatchewan anyway. Uh, It was an idiom for someone failing in an attempt to accomplish something. Just one more, humor me with this, to prove that strange idioms occur even in other languages. So in Quebec, somebody might say, L'affaire est ketchup. And it's not literally about your favorite French fry condiment, but it means everything's okay. So someone might ask, tout, a, tout va bien? That is, everything okay? And the person might respond by saying, L'affaire est ketchup. It's all right. Idioms are fun. In part because they don't mean anything close to what they say. The sum is different, if not greater, than the parts. And in Hosea 12, the prophet portrays God's frustration with his covenant people in a courtroom drama, and he presents his case in a number of ways. And in the midst of that, he actually uses from time to time some idioms that on the surface might seem kind of innocuous, but when we dig a little deeper, we find that they are actually pretty damning. This is the last verse of Hosea 11, and then chapter 12. Only two more chapters to go after today. Israel surrounds me with lies and deceit, but Judah still obeys God and is faithful to the Holy One. Now, we've got to stop there already, because if you've got a Bible, you know there's a footnote there. 
Uh, and the footnote is depicting the fact that there's different ways to read the original language on this verse. And the translators of the New Living Translation have decided to go uh, with a favorable one in which they portray the Lord as contrasting the actions of the northern kingdom of Israel, the main focus of this book, with the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel continues in its lies and deceit. Don't forget that word deceit. We're going to hear it a lot today. Uh, Judah continues in its obedience, according to this way of translating it. Uh, in the tra- and historically, this was true. In the 8th century B.C., yeah, exactly. Uh, in the 8th century B.C., it was actually still common that the people of the northern kingdom were messing around, going away from God, and the people of the southern kingdom were still holding pretty tight with the Lord. But that was beginning to unravel. There's another way to read the Hebrew there, which suggests that perhaps Judah was obeying the Canaanite gods and being faithful to the holy ones within that tradition. But because the focus of this book is on the northern kingdom, uh, we're going to focus on that too. Though verse 2 actually suggests that Judah was in the same boat as Israel was by this time. This is chapter 12, verse 1. The people of Israel feed on the wind. They chase after the east wind all day long. They pile up lies and violence. They're making an alliance with Assyria while sending olive oil to buy support from Egypt. The people of Israel are chasing after the east wind. It's bad enough that they're chasing after the wind. They're actually chasing after the east wind. Uh, Following hard after that which is elusive and without substance. If an old codger looks at some young person who wants to go after her dream to be like Ernest Hemingway and she quits her job and moves into the Latin Quarter in Paris with nothing but a little bit of savings, he might say she was chasing the wind. But to chase after the east wind is another category. Because if you know anything about meteorology, you know that, in, in, at least in North America, the way the jet stream goes is how the wind goes. The prevailing wind comes from the west and to the east in this part of the world. And you know what happens if you get an east wind coming? Around here, it typically means it's probably going to rain. But we've already seen Hurricane Lee, for example, And how did that come in? That came in from the east. Chasing after the wind is bad enough. Chasing after the east wind is going after a storm. And we know that the people of Israel were not literally running after a breeze, you know, basically getting ready to toss themselves into the sea. They were following a way of life that was going to get them in trouble. Hosea cites examples, making alliances with Assyria. You know, if you're new to this, Assyria was the the superpower to the north and east of them. Uh, And buying support from Egypt. Egypt was that nation exactly where it is today in Africa. Uh, They kind of had an on-again, off-again relationship with the people uh, of the Holy Land. Why was this important to note? It was, what Hosea is doing here is he's demonstrating where people place their trust, and it isn't in the Lord. Verse 2. Now the Lord is bringing charges against Judah. 
He's about to punish Jacob for all his deceitful ways and pay him back for all he has done. Names often had meaning in the Old Testament, and few had as much meaning, as rich a meaning, as the name Jacob. If you remember from Genesis 25, if you've read the book of Genesis, you know that Isaac and Rebekah gave birth to Jacob and Esau, twins. And when Jacob was born, he came out holding the heel of his twin brother. And Jacob literally means heel grasper. But it's another word for deceiver. So the fact that the Lord was about to punish Jacob, the whole kingdom, the whole nation of Israel, not just the northern kingdom, for all his deceitful ways makes a lot of sense, given the name. We'll say more about that in a minute. Verse 3. Even in the womb, Jacob struggled with his brother. When he became a man, he fought with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and won. Jacob wrestled with an angel of the Lord and won, but he walked with a limp for the rest of his life as a reminder of the battle he fought. He prayed for a blessing, uh, in not unlike the one he stole from his brother Esau, if you remember that story, with a bowl of stew. You know, Esau was so hungry, he was prepared to give up his birthright to have something to eat. That's how messed up society has always been, right? Uh, He wept and pleaded for a blessing from him. There at Bethel, he met God face to face and God spoke to him. The Lord God of heaven's armies, the Lord is his name. So at Bethel, we find Jacob's turning point. This is when Bethel was still a good place because remember it's been called Bethaven at some point or other because the people of Israel had turned it into a place of idol worship. But originally it was a place where Jacob met the Lord. And that was his turning point, that place. That's when he stopped trusting himself and started trusting the Lord. And that's when the Lord said he would give the nation the blessing of Abraham. Verse 6, so now, literally that says, but as for you, come back to your God. Act with love and justice and always depend on him. But no, the people are like crafty merchants selling from dishonest scales. They love to cheat. Here we have another idiom that's really sort of a simile, really. It's not that easy to see in English. Hosea says that the people are like crafty merchants. That word merchants literally is Canaanites, which can also be translated as traffickers. See, when God gave Canaan to his covenant people as they made their exodus from Egypt all the way uh, into the Holy Land all those years earlier, God was taking the land of depravity and turning it into a land of promise. And now here were the people of the promise turning that land back into a land of depravity. The merchants were putting 110% of a shekel onto the scale, thereby cheating people in their trading. Kind of like when the butcher puts his thumb on the scale and he's measuring out your meat. God alleges that the people of Israel love to cheat. Verse 8. Israel boasts, I am rich. 
I have made a fortune all by myself. No one has caught me cheating. My record is spotless. See, they don't even deny that they've been cheating. They just say they've never been caught. That seems like a fairly common ethical issue today, doesn't it? Whether it's speeding on the 400 or slipping a chocolate bar into your pocket without paying for it, using somebody else's Netflix account. It's still cheating, deceiving, even if we are never caught. And the people say, my record is spotless. I am rich. But then the Lord jumps in himself with a contrasting statement. He says, but I am the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery in Egypt. In other words, God is saying this. Who gives a rip if you've never been caught? I'm the Lord. I made covenant with you. I know everything you do. I'm the one who rescued you from being slaves in Egypt. And then what? And I will make you live in tents again as you do each year at the festival of shelters. See, in, in Jewish tradition, they have a number of different feasts that they celebrate every year. One of them is going on right now, their new year. Uh, but this one that's being referred to here is the festival of shelters or the feast of booths or uh, and it's, it's a, a time celebrated by the Jews from the time of the Exodus uh, in which they remember how God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. They put up these little huts or these tents and, and they, they eat there, they sleep there for a few nights as a reminder of God's rescue. Reminding them that 40 years they had no home as they made their way to the promised land. And now, says the Lord, he's going to make them sleep in tents again, but for longer than a few days. The exile under the Assyrians that they will face for their deceit will be much longer. Verse 10, I sent my prophets to warn you with many visions and parables, but the people of Gilead are worthless because of their idol worship. And Gilgal, too, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars are lined up like the heaps of stone along the edges of a plowed field. See, the people have received repeated warnings from the prophets God has sent to call them to faithfulness. Throughout the Old Testament, right, the latter part of the Old Testament is prophets. These are people God has sent to speak to the people to say, hey, straighten up and fly right. Follow Jesus. Follow the Lord. Jesus, well... I'm going to get to this next week. Jesus was actually there, but I'll save that for, for, uh, for next week. He also mentions Gilgal and Gilead, definitely places that have been mentioned earlier in the book of Hosea, places that were filled with deceit and false worship. You could say to the people of Israel, Gilgal or Gilead, and they would understand that with the same kind of knowing as if we mention Vegas. We know the kinds of things that can happen in Vegas. We also know that that's not always what happens there, but we get a sense of what it means just by dropping the name. This is their present problem. Verse 12, Jacob fled to the land of Aram, and there he earned a wife by tending sheep. Then by a prophet, the Lord brought Jacob's descendants out of Egypt, and by that prophet, that's Moses, they were protected. See, 
This is, again, if you've read the book of Genesis, you get this. But if you haven't, make it a fun read sometime this week. It's, it's really an intriguing read. See, Jacob fled to Aram, and he was protected by his uncle Laban. And under his uncle Laban, he labored for a wife. He had to work for seven years to get a wife. And in the dark of night, he was presented with his wife. And in the morning, it was Leah. Trouble is, he had wanted Rachel. Laban had tricked him. The deceiver had been deceived. And so he had to work another seven years to be able to get the wife he wanted in the first place. Verse 14, But the people of Israel have bitterly provoked the Lord, so their Lord will now sentence them to death in payment for their sins. The people have deceived, the people have worshipped falsely, the people have relied on themselves instead of seeking the blessing of the Lord, and God has been understandably provoked. They will be overtaken by the Assyrians and they'll be carted off into exile. You may be wondering, how on earth could this possibly apply to us today? Well, let me tell you. Deceit, this is not a surprise. Tell me this is not a surprise. Deceit is not just limited to Bible times, right? There was a report in the news last week that the government of Cuba is investigating information about Russians who under false pretenses took Cuban men to Russia to fight for them in the Russo-Ukrainian war. That's deceit. I was speaking with a church consultant recently who told me, our treasurer does not do this, I'm, I'm certain of this, just to be clear. But he told me how some church leaders report what they report to the Canada Revenue Agency, which they have to do every year, and what they report to the congregation in the annual report book don't look the same. They've done some creative accounting to make the picture look rosier for the congregation. That's deceit. You, you don't know. He, he doesn't do that. The Israelites were saying they trusted the Lord, but they told a different story by their political alliances and machinations and their worship of Canaanite gods. They took credit for all their blessings, thinking that nobody would hold them accountable for their sins. They didn't trust God to care for their needs, and they didn't deal honestly with God or with each other. That's deceit. Do you trust God to meet your needs? I mentioned a couple weeks ago that I sometimes stop and ponder what it would be like if everything I had disappeared. In the end, I said I would have to trust God to meet my needs, and that's a serious act of faith. But trusting God to meet your needs doesn't mean, you know, quitting your job and lying on the couch all day playing video games or watching Netflix. God cares for our needs through the provision of employment and opportunities for growth. God cares for our needs through the community of faith. As we gather as the church and experience his grace in fresh ways. But some people never give up their adolescent desire to assert their independence, even their independence from God. They figure that everything rests on them. In that case, they're deceiving themselves and the Lord who longs to provide for their needs. 
Eventually, there's got to be an accounting for the deceit and lack of trust. And for the Israelites that would come in their exile to Assyria, a foreign land with foreign customs and no opportunity to celebrate their heritage whatsoever. For us, that can come in any number of ways. And there are all sorts of metaphorical exiles into which we can find ourselves cast. I'll let you join your own dots there. So avoid deceit. Be honest with yourself, be honest with God, since he knows all about you anyway. Trust him. There's no one better to trust than the one who knows you the most intimately. Deceit, right, isn't just limited to Bible times, and neither is forgetting the past. Hosea calls the people of Israel to remember their revered ancestor Jacob. Jacob was an enigma, to say the very least. Born grasping the heel of his twin brother Esau, that became his metaphor for life, the deceiver. He tried to make it on his own, even when he sought reconciliation with his brother. Instead of just trusting God to bring that reconciliation to pass, he sent along ahead of him all kinds of bribes in the forms of animals to try to soften Esau up. The northern kingdom of Israel had forgotten that deceit and lack of trust were part of their history from which they should learn, lest they repeat it. But they forgot it, and repeat it they did. They chose to focus on their own rights instead of their responsibilities, and to do whatever they wished instead of focusing on the Lord's covenant. Now, we see this illustrated in our news in different ways, don't we? We've all seen the statue of Egerton Ryerson that was pulled down and defaced by people who could only see one side, one small slice of the life of a man who contributed so much to the early development of the province of Ontario. We see images of our first prime minister removed from everything from park benches to currency because people focus on one ugly aspect of a man who, despite his many faults, labored hard to build this country. Instead of learning from the past, we eradicate it. We chase the wind. What would we say if the government of Germany decided to completely destroy the concentration camps that stand as reminders of the ugliness of National Socialism? Well, they might say, Nazis had their good points. Let's learn from the past, but not eradicate it. Let's not chase the wind as the Israelites did. The story of Hosea 12 and the history that supports it suggests there was a phenomenon being lived out that had been lived out in every culture since, including our own, and that's the phenomenon called generational sin. Generational sin. Let me illustrate it this way. If I asked you to draw out your family tree as far back as you could remember, you might get back three, four generations. If you're a genealogist, you might get back quite a few more generations than that. It'd be one thing to say, okay, here's so-and-so's great-granddaddy. But then what if I asked you to, with your memory or whatever research you could do, discern the traits, the character of these people with full honesty. You might get to see a picture of generational sin. 
We might see everything from spousal abandonment to marital unfaithfulness to alcohol abuse in some of our ancestors. And if we dig deeply enough, we might start to notice how it has trickled down through the generations. We've heard the old saying, like father, like son. Often children do imitate their parents because that's what they see as normative. And the chain of generational sin can only be broken with intent. We have to understand the past if we are going to change the future. We have to be willing to learn from it and to receive the grace of God to make it happen. The people of the northern kingdom of Israel refused to do that. They were high on themselves. They were high on their worship of false gods. And like the people of today, uh, fully committed to the thought that their way was better because it was not the way of the past. They wouldn't learn from Jacob's mistakes They wouldn't learn from the mistakes of the wandering Israelites in the Exodus. They wouldn't learn from what the prophets had been telling them for hundreds of years to follow the way of the Lord. Those Israelites had the prophets and the stories told of the good, the great, the bad, and the ugly of their past as a covenant people of God. We have God's word. We have the Bible tells us not only the stories of the people of the Old Covenant, but the people of the New Covenant as well. In Scripture, we have the sweeping story of salvation, the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ given to us. We have the story of the early church and the way that we have been called to follow. But many people, even many fine church-going people, choose to forget about the past instead of learning from it. They choose to live deceitfully. They rely on themselves and pacts with others instead of trusting God. They don't take God or his word seriously. If you want to avoid being told that you're chasing the wind, or worse, chasing the east wind, just read your Bible. I mentioned in a recent encouragement email that when I went through my mother's Bible, I was warmed not only by the keepsakes that she had in there, but by the simple fact that it gave great evidence of having been read. It was worn. Don't leave your Bible on a shelf as if it would be a good luck charm, as if there were such a thing as luck. There is no such thing as luck. Read your Bible every day, even if it's just a verse or two. Read it on an app on your phone. Get your phone to to ding at you, to remind you to read your Bible. There's a treasure trove of truth just waiting to be applied to your life. It's the kind of generational imitation we want to see, right? My grandmother and my mother both died with a well-worn Bible on their kitchen table. And that's a legacy I too hope to leave for you and for the people I teach and mentor. In the end, Jacob only prevailed as the great ancestor of a people. He only became Israel because he sought and obtained the blessing of the Lord. His namesake, Northern Kingdom, ignored that. You don't have to. Read your Bible, let it inform you. But more than that, let it form you. Let it shape you to keep you from deceit to keep you from trusting yourself alone, 
from ignoring history. And then you will not be chasing after the wind. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light for our path. Thank you that we have stories, both negative and positive, from which we can learn that which is contained in your word. Help us not to be a people who cancel the past, but a people who clutch what you can teach us from it. We pray for those who engage in deceit and lies and self-reliance, perhaps even ourselves. Help us all to trust in you alone. Give us grace to make time daily to read your word and to apply it to our lives, that what we pass down to the next generation will be a love for you and your way. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, for we cannot make this happen on our own. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need some pointers on where to start reading your Bible, use the connection card and let me know. Connection cards at stpaulsnobleton.ca slash connect. I can give you some tools that will be helpful to you as you seek to follow the Lord and avoid chasing the wind. Thanks for listening. Again, please subscribe, and if you have any questions or would like prayer, go to stpaulsnobleton.ca slash connect and fill in the connection card. I'll be glad to follow up with you. Blessings for your day.